I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Hello, friends. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton, uh, joined in studio here at the Kriegel House in Edmond by Tim and Sam, as usual. Great to see you guys. How you doing? Doing well. Good to be here. Yeah, good to be here, too. Doing well. Tim, Glad what's to be new? hanging out with you fellas. Um, what's new? We have... No, um, just in your life. Oh, just in my life? Yeah. Uh, kids, all right? Uh, yep. Kids are doing great. Now, tell, tell us about your kids. What, what do you have? I have a six-year-old girl named Hannah, a five-year-old boy named Silas, and a two-year-old girl named Grace. Grace is so funny. She is hilarious. She is a character. She is smiley. She is, and she is potty trained now, which is a huge deal in our family. So for the first time in about six years, we have no one wearing Now, completely potty trained? Yeah, it's really been weird. She hasn't had an accident at all, even sleeping uh, for over a week. Hmm. Maybe we should devote a theology unplugged broadcast to the dynamics of potty training and we, everything. And we, I would just have to listen because it doesn't work at our house very well. <laughs> yeah, well, for some reason, I think since she's the youngest, for some reason she just decided she was ready, mm-hmm. and we didn't we didn't really have to convince her of it. She just said, "I'm ready," and here I am. No, Zach is so. five years old and he's potty trained except for at night, and I don't know what to do about that. It's just. This is getting deep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> deep. Theology of potty training. Yeah. I don't think there's anything about it. Sam? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Why did you immediately turn and look at me after potty saying that? Yeah. Speaking yeah. of diapers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going downhill fast. I'm doing well. Let's move to the topic at hand. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, we are continuing our um, series here on difficult passages of the Scripture. And today we're going to talk about a... A passage, or I would really say a series of passages. We might just bring up one or two of them and and put that as the placeholder for the for the difficulty. Uh, but uh, I think it's um, uh, most Christian apologists, <clears throat> those people who defend the faith, will say over the next ten years. And I've heard this a lot recently. Over the next ten years, the key issue in apologetics has to do with what we're going to be talking about here today. And, um, you know, different times we go through seasons where an issue becomes big and then it goes away. Then another issue becomes big and it goes away. Then another issue comes back. And this is one that creeps itself up quite often within the church. But I I, I sometimes label it modern-day Marcionism. Marcion, guy that didn't like God of the Old Testament, didn't really fit into his philosophy, didn't like some of the things that... Christ in the New Testament changed things around, made his own Bible, and which was essentially a a um, uh, one that uh, neutered the Bible of all things that seemed to have to do with this evil deity, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Today, it seems like we're going we're we're moving into this time where increasingly uh, the outside world is being bombarded with uh, ideas of skepticism that they should have towards the Bible and towards specifically the God of the Bible and most specifically the God of the Old Testament, often calling him a moral monster, a, a child abuser, someone who throws temper tantrums whenever he doesn't get his way. And, and this is really popularized by some of the new atheists, especially Richard Dawkins, who has a statement very specific about this that I'll read in a moment. But it all has to do with this idea that God 
in the Old Testament seems to be an evil moral monster. And well, there's nothing new with this too. I mean, this shouldn't really surprise Christians. I mean, you can see even in Gnosticism, uh, which is very, very old, that Gnosticism had this idea that that an evil god made the earth, and and an evil god uh, did everything that we see. Everything that is matter is from an evil god, and Jesus came to enlighten us and free us from this evil god, even. And so, uh, you know, this isn't a surprise, but it does continue to form itself in in very new ways yeah in spite of the fact that jesus referred to his father as the god of abraham isaac and jacob exactly yeah yeah and i mean what is fair to see here too though and uh, this isn't this is a total tangent but gnosticism typically is extremely anti-semitic because if the god of the old testament is evil then his people will be evil as well and so, so anti-Semitism is is very close to Gnosticism, and is very close to uh, if you see God in the Old Testament as evil, many times people see His people as evil as well, which takes you to a really dangerous place. Centers around some commands that God gives in the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus and the conquest period, where the Israelites were going into the Promised Land, and and God tells them what to do in the Promised Land, and uh, the, these these um, these statements basically from the outside looking in look like God is commanding genocide. Now, whenever we talk about genocide, we talk about the extinction of a, of a people or a nation or, or wiping someone out. Uh, uh, one nation coming in and wiping out another nation or internally having some type of, of genocide. And, and we see this as, as being one of the paramount expressions of evil that we can we can um, uh, look across the world and, and witness going on. As a matter of fact, whenever these things happen, oftentimes we, we get into wars over this. We feel like it is our obligation to go in and help people and rescue people from evil dictators who, who think that they can um, elevate themselves above another people, uh, so much so to, to exterminate them. Uh, we see this in the Holocaust. And we look at the Holocaust and we look at Hitler. And if I was to ask people and a group of people just about anywhere in the world today, who's the most evil person that you could think of that has ever existed? And a lot of people bring up Hitler. As a matter of fact, most people bring up Hitler. Why? Because genocide. He sought to exterminate a certain group of people. He thought himself better than another group of people and sought to exterminate them. We went to war over that uh, as he conquested his way out of Germany. Uh, in the 1940s, and we see that as perfectly justified. Us fighting against anyone who would have this inclination towards genocide. Richard Dawkins says this, What makes my jaw drop is that people today should base their lives on such an appalling role model as Yahweh. And even worse, that they should bossily, I guess that's a word, try to force the same evil monster, whether fact or fiction, on the rest of us. Evil monster, God in the Old Testament, commanding genocide. Passages uh, that talk about this are a few, but uh, let me just bring up one that was kind of the result passage that uh, Joshua comes in and um, fulfills the command of the Lord, and this is what it is said happened. Um, Let me get to the passage. I've got it in front of me. All right. Joshua 6.21. Yeah. 
Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. That's the ESV rendering. Utterly destroyed is the uh, New American Standard. Everything. Mm -hmm. Where we're good, maybe with oxen and sheep, donkeys, not that big of a deal, except for maybe PETA would have a problem there. Uh, But what gives us pause is the young and old. Um, Go in and destroy everything in the city, everyone in the city. Everything that has breath is a word used. Everything that breathes. Don't leave anything breathing, God says. And so it seems to be that we have the situation in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where God commands the Israelites to go into Canaan and kill everything. Men, women, children, baby, nursing babies, everything else. I remember John Hammond talking about this at, uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he, he, had a, he had a way of escalating issues a little bit more and very descriptive about how they may kill the children. You know, and that was the first time I really ever thought about it. Once he got descriptive on how do you kill a child? You know, how do you kill a, a nursing baby? And uh, that was his his statement. And you know, he kind of left it at that. Didn't offer any solutions. But is this a problem passage? Why do we bring it up, Sam? Well, certainly, uh, as you read uh, the text, as we have just in two different translations, it does pose a problem. The question is, what does the text mean? Is it saying what? Um, we in 21st century America uh, think that it is saying, uh, and there are some who've argued that in fact uh, that is not what God commanded, and they give several reasons for it. For example, they'll say, uh, and you know, we've talked about Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? And Paul, in his book, points out that there was stock stereotypical language used in the time of the Old Testament um, that meant wholesale destruction or widespread uh, killing that did not necessarily entail um, the slaughter of every single man, woman, and child. In other words, it's simply Old Testament language that means uh, they want a decisive victory. Go in and defeat the enemy. And in order to express that notion, they use this rather universal terminology, but it wasn't intended to be pressed literally. Uh, And one of the ways in which he uh, tries to demonstrate that that is the case is that he points out... um, E. Paul Copan. Yes, Paul Copan points out, and a very interesting passage. This is just one example. In Joshua 11, a little bit later, we read um, in verses 14 and 15 that... um, Let me just read it. Uh, But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, just basic logic here tells us uh, something. If God commanded Moses to do the same thing that he's now commanding Joshua, then if Moses obeyed God's command, and the text says he did, there wouldn't be any Canaanites left for Joshua to kill. If he, had dis- if he had extinguished every single bre- living, breathing soul, then who is it that remains for Joshua to kill? And there are other examples in Joshua and Judges where uh, subsequent to the time that Joshua fulfilled and obeyed the command and in fact de- utterly destroyed all, as the text says, you read about these people still in existence. In fact, God continues to say, hey, don't intermarry with them. But how could they even be there 
to intermarry with if Joshua had in fact done what God told him to do, and the text says he did. So the point is, the texts are not commanding a universal slaughter of every man, woman, and child. And Paul's argument, Paul Copan's argument is that when you look more closely, that what these texts are telling Joshua to do and saying that this is likewise what Moses did is to destroy all the combatants. In other words, it's a, who, the ones that they killed were those who actually engaged in battle with them. They were enemy combatants, which, you know, you look today, we engage in, let's go back to Vietnam or World War II, and um, that was the responsibility of the Allied soldiers in World War II and the Americans in Vietnam, is that is to kill the enemy combatants. Now, granted, there were instances, as we know, in Vietnam where soldiers took it upon themselves to slaughter villages of women and children. And, of course, many of them were brought to trial for war crimes. So the argument is that when you read the text more holistically, you see that, in fact, um, those who were devoted to destruction were the military enemies of Israel and that uh, these texts should not be understood to encompass all women and children as well. Now, that's one way of addressing it. Not necessarily saying it's altogether persuasive, but that's the argument that uh, Copan puts forth in his book. Uh, would, would that include the sheep, the sheep and the cattle? And no, else? no. Again, that's he, as he would say, that stereotypical stock rhetoric designed to say, "Go in and defeat the enemy," and it it lists all of the livestock and all of the potential human beings who might exist as a way of communicating the idea of defeat the enemy. Be successful, be pervasive in your subjugation of the enemy. But whether or not it's to be pressed in a, in a strictly literal way to mean that if you see a little goat running down the street, you got to take out your sword and, and kill it, uh, that's another matter. Yeah. I, th- I think, too, there's a sense of wondering... I mean, there is a, a part in all of us that says that's unjust to wipe out everybody. You know, let's say that I, mean, I think Sam has, has provided a, a, a well-reasoned uh, idea of, of how we could get to where infants were not killed. But uh, our fight against this, though, is an idea that somehow we're more just than God is and that somehow we understand things better than God does. And I think if you're not... I think in this issue, God invites us to move from the little kids' table during Thanksgiving to sit at the big kids' table and talk about uh, about the adult issues. You know that this is really serious stuff. And I think um, I was uh, one of my favorite books that I've come across recently on the problem of evil in the world. I love uh, Unspeakable by Oz Guinness. I think he does a wonderful job walking through different aspects of evil. And in in here. Uh, the author of The Lord of the Flies uh, has a great quote in here where he says, I used to believe in the perfectibility of social man. But after the war, he's speaking of uh, World War II, he said, after the war, I did not because I was unable to. I had discovered what one man could do to another. I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey, must have been blind or wrong in the head. And I think there is this deep sense of, uh, even in Genesis, uh, where God is telling Abraham the great things that are going to happen down his line, he says in 1513, 
The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God's looking ahead, telling him what's going to happen over the next 400 years. In verse 14, he says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, speaking of Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And then in verse 16, he says, And they shall come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so he's even foreshadowing how evil these people are that are going to be called to be exterminated. And, uh, and so it's not like God is going into this, this land where everyone is living in a utopian society and, and because he's a moral monster says, let's kill them all. He's entering into a very evil area where archaeologically we have found evidence of child sacrifice and different things that, that, that a society is doing. And he is saying their time has come. They've had every chance to repent. You know, centuries. Yeah, you know, exactly. So, I mean, the, the, when, when, when Joshua finally entered into the land, this was after centuries of divine long-suffering. And, Tim, you mentioned their wickedness. The, the depravity of the Canaanites m- was unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, when you read, for example, in Leviticus of uh, why God told the Israelites to avoid this practice and that practice— it's because he's contrasting that with what the Canaanites did. Don't be like them. Mm-hmm. You know, the child sacrifice, the bestiality, the, the uh, temple prostitution, uh, the corruption of these people was pervasive. And one other thing to remember, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's very interesting uh, when God is speaking to, to Moses and the people, telling them about when they go into the land to dispossess the Canaanites. He says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, do not say this, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So, if anybody has this idea that Israel did this because of a sense of moral superiority, uh, God is saying, don't you dare say that. In fact, God says, if you end up doing the practices of the Canaanites, I'll bring the same judgment against you that I'm now bringing against them. So it wasn't because of the moral superiority of Israel as if they thought, well, we're good and they're evil. Mm-hmm. It's just that the evil of the Canaanites was so far off the charts that it was almost beyond comprehension. Exactly. I mean, imagine you know, we look from afar at, at terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, and we, we look from a distance, and, and we, being people who seek for justice, say justice needs to be done in that area. And we only see it from the news area. God sees it from the hearts of those people. He is on the ground there. He knows that situation intimately. And he knew that situation intimately at that time as well. He knew the hearts of all people, and and he knew what would happen if these people were able to continue ruling uh, that area of the world. And so we can look and say that's unjust, uh, but I think if if we put him on the stand, he could very quickly dismantle our lack of seeing uh, what he sees and knowing what he knows. Uh, you had talked about uh, the idea of them it being inconsistent for us to say that they really actually did utterly destroy them. 
uh, and there's other commands about this as well, or admonishments where God says, be kind to the foreigner in your land, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because you were in the land of Egypt, and remember, you know, how you were treated, be kind to them. If we utterly wiped them out, you know, the foreigners are not in the land anymore. Um, there does seem to be some stuff about intermarriage, um, not intermarrying them, so I don't know if that would contribute to the the prolonged genocide if they did stay in there, but don't marry them or or let them flourish within your nation, or let them exist or let them convert. Maybe it might be. Um, however, is is this? I mean, when we look at this, isn't there a a, a significant difference when we talk about Hitler? coming in and wiping out someone and God making a judgment in such a way that I, I think absolutely out. I mean Hitler was unjust Hitler did the things that he did not out, out of an all-knowing uh, justice he did the he did wickedness I mean it's basically saying is there a difference between good and evil and uh, you know if you say well every person can just do whatever and Hitler just happened to be the king of the mountain and so good for Hitler because he won he won or something uh, but instead I, I think you do look at what constitutes good and what constitutes evil and uh, and so you could say well anyone who who kills someone is evil well that's not necessarily true because you can have a, a, a Supreme Court justice who upholds uh, who looks at the evidence and sees if there is guilt or innocence, uh, then rightly decides that this is a guilty person and sentences them to death, and that is a just thing. And people will look at that Supreme Court justice and say they have kept the peace. They have done what is just. But then if Hitler moves in and someone dies as well as a result of him, uh, you examine his his motives why he did what he did were those people guilty or were they innocent and we say those people were innocent his act his actions were not just they were evil and it's interesting in joshua for example uh, how god sets the stage through joshua early on in the book for what happens later for example in joshua three eleven, uh, yahweh is specifically described as the lord of all the earth and it's almost as if he's kind of setting the stage saying, look, a little bit later, God is going to expel these peoples, the Canaanites, these seven nations, in fact, from the promised land. And he can do it because he owns the whole earth. He's the Lord over all the earth. If they were there in the first place, it's because God placed them there sovereignly. And it's his right as Lord over all the earth to give the land to whom he wishes and to take it back any time that he wishes. So you're right, Tim. This is not an issue of um, has somebody been treated unfairly. This is an issue of either justice or mercy. And let me just throw a couple of other thoughts out there. As we stand back from this and think about the, uh, the, the idea that God would sanction the destruction of people this way, thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands of enemy combatants and others, and we feel this, as you say, this kind of this instinctive moral revulsion, and we react and we recoil. What are we going to do with the flood? In the flood of Noah, the enti- all the inhabitants of the earth, except for eight people, were wiped out. So if you have a problem with uh, what God does in Joshua, you're going to have a problem with what God did in the flood. Now let's expand that even more. What about the end of history? What about hell? Um, 
is it really that big of a surprise to us that God occasionally does in history what we know he's going to do at the end of history? At the end of history, he's going to destroy and judge and separate from himself forever the wicked. So the fact that God would do that in this kind of expression within history really shouldn't cause us that much of surprise. Well, it's really a smaller pill to swallow, what we're talking about as compared to the ultimate judgment that's coming. Right, right. exactly. And then one other thing, um, and, and this is the probably, um, and Tim's already touched on this, but this is the one thing that, that helps me more than anything else as I reflect on it. We come to these passages of Scripture, and we read them operating out of the, most oftentimes, unconscious assumption that God owes us life. That somehow God is indebted to us to keep us alive and to give us good things to experience and to sustain us uh, for, for the duration, you know, 80, 90, 100 years. The fact is, the only thing that God owes us is death. We forfeit any claim on life at the first sin we commit, we immediately become liable to judgment. We commit cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul has said it, um, the first transgression of which we are guilty. The fact that anybody continues to live is an expression of divine mercy. So I, I, would, I would say this, and this may sound a little bit shocking to some, but I'm going to say it anyway. What we ought to be shocked by isn't death, but life. What ought to surprise us isn't so much that the Canaanites were wiped out, but that God allowed them to live as long as he did. Um, The only thing that we are deserving of is death and eternal damnation, and it is the sheer mercy of God that we continue to live, and even a greater, unimaginable expression of mercy that he actually acts through Jesus Christ to give us eternal life. If we ever read the Bible thinking that that is a debt God is paying or that he owes it to us, uh, we have, we've turned the Bible on its head. We have completely distorted the biblical picture of God and of redemption. Because we like everybody to live to the age 100 years old. You know, at least that's what it is today. You're, you know, 70 to 100 years yeah. old. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I tell my wife this, and I've told my, my congregation at Bridgeway this. I say, look, folks, and I, I preached this not too long ago. I said, look, I'm 61 years old. If I drop dead of a heart attack while I'm speaking to you or sometime in the coming days, don't you dare accuse God of injustice. You get on your knees and you praise him that he allowed this scurrilous sinner to live 61 years longer than he deserved. And I mean that seriously. Um, But we don't typically think of life and death in those terms. We think of, well, God owes me um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, no, he doesn't. He owes me damnation. And guess what? He hasn't given it to me and he never will because he poured it out upon his son. Which is why he offers his son to you for life, for liberty, that you'd be free in Christ, and and that he would lead you safely home. I mean, that is the the scandal in all of this conversation is the scandal of the grace that God gives us in Christ. I mean, that truly is the great scandal. And I really think, you know, you read Dawkins, and if if he were here and I could press the point, I really think that people such as that are operating under the assumption that if there is this God that Christians claim exists— that he is in our debt, that he's there to serve us, that uh, he owes us 
uh, good and great life. And so Dawkins looks at all the evil in the world and he says, well, either God doesn't exist or if he does, he's a moral monster. And I say, no, he does exist. And we are moral monsters. Exactly. Yeah, when the London Times, I think, put out a thing that says, what is wrong with the world? And they just did an open call to say, what is wrong with the world? And they got all these responses. uh, But G.K. Chesterton gave the one response that he sent in two words, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. And and, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was was great uh, exposing that, too, that he said, if you want to remove all of the evil from the world, what you're going to have to do is remove every human being from the world because that vein runs through every one of us that's why we all need a savior and that and so we are all capable of these things apart from the grace of god and so when we interact with god in this way i think we have to recognize but by the grace of god um, we are who we are then we also can say that there are alternatives to these things which is christ christ is the great alternative towards the evil in the world and he is he is the great redeemer and he is the only hope uh, that we have for humankind. Amen. And, uh, you know, y'all mentioned uh, Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan, a great work, recent work that is dealing with, uh, I think, a very pivotal issue. I think this is a key issue. I think mm-hmm. all of our listeners, I want you to be not only aware of this and, and through this broadcast, but follow up on this uh, because this is the types of things that are going around and they, they are soundbite um, uh, polemics against Christianity that are effective to a lot of people, and we need to be able to answer them. Yeah, in that book, I had it on my uh, top ten list for the year it came out. Uh, it is it doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with every interpretation he provides, but he goes far beyond just the issue of uh, the, uh, the the slaughter of the Canaanites. He addresses a multitude of so-called problems in the Old Testament that you scratch your head like, why would God give Israel all these bizarre laws mm-hmm. and uh, so many other things about what about slavery? What about the treatment of women? And so when people read the Old Testament, they scratch their heads uh, about that. Copan does a great job in explaining that in a very, very clear way. It's, a, it's yeah. an excellent book. He has a great, great chapter on Abraham uh, supposedly killing Isaac as right. well. That's, yeah. that's a good topic, too. And uh, we did, I mentioned the book, too, but I want to put another plug in for Oz Guinness's book, Unspeakable. Uh, one of the aspects that I really like about this book, too, is that Guinness goes into what do all the other world religions believe about evil and how we interact with evil as well. And I think he makes a very convincing argument argument that the most rational, reasonable uh, processing of evil is the one that God has given us through his word. Well, good. And then one more I'll plug uh, is God Behaving Badly by David Lamb. I don't know David Lamb. is the first book I've ever read by him. But uh, dealing with the issue, same thing that Paul, Paul Copan deals with of God in the Old Testament, I think it's more in a... Um, in a way that is uh, maybe more pastoral rather than academic. Paul Copan is very academic reference type work and, and digging into the individual passages. But this this goes in quite a bit into uh, recognizing the grace of God in the Old Testament first and, and preempting all of this understanding, like Sam was talking about earlier, how much grace prevails in the Old Testament and right. our perspective needs to change. And I just throw in another work, an older work, that is very helpful is R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. Hmm. Uh, excellent treatment of these issues as well and reminding us that uh, what we find in fact in the Old Testament is a remarkable expression of leniency and grace and he just he basically turns people's conception of of God on its head 
in, uh, in, in addressing this problem. It's an excellent treatment of it. All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed this broadcast and dealing with uh, problem passages. Next week, we will uh, come back together and take another one on, right, guys? Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Not the whole thing, right? Not the whole thing. Okay. Jacob, I love, but he saw I hate it. Does God hate people? Don't look at me when you ask that question. All right. All right. <laughs> well, I'll look at you next week. Until then. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.